and welcome to the Big Happy Life podcast. I'm Natalie Britt, and this week we're talking about the stories we tell ourselves. Not just any stories, but five specific stories. So see if you can recognize these from their titles as stories that you might have told yourself at some point too. First, there's the I'll be happy when story. Then the I am not enough story. The there's nothing I can do story the I have no choice story, and the other person sucks story, whoever that other person may be. Now, this idea has featured in quite a few episodes in the past, and I've put links to the other episodes about the stories we tell ourselves in the show notes, which you'll find at bighappylife.co.uk. But this week, I wanted to talk about these specific stories that we tell ourselves and how they shape our thinking. Now, all stories shape our thinking. They become our beliefs, they shape our values, they are shaped by our values, and they play a major part in the options that we see and the options that we choose because they determine whether we see something as good or bad. They determine whether we see something at all. And when you understand the power of the stories we tell ourselves, you understand the need to start making them more intentional. That's what this episode is about. Here we go. I'd like you to imagine you are walking in a large kind of marshy, swampy field. It's late at night. There is no light around. It's very, very dark. You have a torch or the torch on your cell phone or something with you. And so you're able to cast a light just basically in front of you. So where your next step is going to be is the only light you can see. Everything else is pitch black. And so you have to use that light to figure out where to put your feet so that you don't sink into the swamp. You've got to find the safest, hardest bit of soil to put your foot on so that you can walk across this field as safely as possible. Your stories are the same as that light. What I mean by that is they determine what we see and they determine where we look. Where you shine the torch is where the light goes and that's the only place where you look and your stories do something like that too. The only difference between the torch and the story is that you're much more likely to move the torch around and check for other options, but your stories are far more rigid. And so it's a bit more like walking across that field, but holding the torch in one straight line. So you only walk that one line. And then if you end up falling into the swamp, it's just because there was nothing else. You couldn't see anything else. Your stories are more like that. But once you get to see that they work a bit like the torch, that you can move them around, you can change them. They aren't actually as static as you think they are, and they're not necessarily true. That's when you begin to see other options. That's when you begin to move the torch around and you start to see things that might actually prove better. Might be a longer route, but it could be safer. It might be less convenient, but it could be more enjoyable. There's all kinds of different things that are available to you, but it's going to involve shining the light into an area where you previously weren't looking. So if we look at some of these stories, let's start with I'll be happy when. 
If you think about that story and what actually it shines the light on, what the torch is seeing is, yes, something positive, something in the future that says, oh, you know, this could be mine. But what it also brings into the light, potentially unbeknownst to you, is the dissatisfaction with where you are right now. It implies, I'm not happy now. I'll be happy when I have that thing. Underneath that suggests you're not happy now. And so in that story, the light also gets shone on the missing elements, the things you don't have, the dissatisfaction with what you're experiencing. You know, if it's a case of I'll be happy when I'm rich, then you walk around the shops and you feel the sense of dissatisfaction because of all the things that you can't buy right now, or you kind of throw your experience into the future and imagine yourself in this really kind of utopian future where you can buy that thing that you really want to buy but you fail to enjoy the experience to its fullest today because it isn't the way you want it to be. And for many of us, the I'll be happy when story is present in so many things. I'll be happy when this person notices me. I'll be happy when I'm finished school. I'll be happy when I'm thinner. I'll be happy once I'm married and I'm not worried that he's going to cheat on me, whatever. The key thing about that story is that the light is on the dissatisfaction. The light is on the gap between where you are now and where you would like to be. And that's what makes the story more dangerous than it seems at first glance. The other trouble with a story like that is it's probably not true. You can get that thing, but the likelihood is that you won't necessarily experience a higher level of happiness as a result. You can have the money and ultimately your happiness drops back down. You can marry the guy, but ultimately you worry about him cheating even more than you did before because now you're hitched. Now you're stuck. If he does cheat on you, what are you going to do then? Then it's the whole performance of the divorce. So the doubt doesn't go away because you haven't actually addressed it. You masked it temporarily by getting married, but you didn't deal with it by building trust. And that's the other hallmark of the I'll be happy when story. It throws your attention into the future. So you're less focused on what needs to happen and what you maybe need to focus on today to address the feelings you're experiencing. So instead, when you notice that story, it's useful to ask yourself, what is it that that thing will give you that ultimately is going to make you happy? So if you're going to be happy when you're thin, what is it that thin gives you that you don't have now? If you'll be happy when you're married, what is it that marriage gives you? And those questions can often be really illuminating because they can show you, A, the thing may not actually make you happy, and B, it's possible you already have some form of that, and if you were to focus on now, you could start experiencing that happiness straight away. So for example, I'll be happy when I'm thin, what will thinness give you? Oh, well, it would give me confidence to talk to people. Okay, so what you really are after is confidence. What if we could build that straight away? What if we don't have to worry about whether or not you're a particular weight? What would confidence look like and feel like and sound like for you? What would you be saying to yourself? What would you do with that confidence? Who would you talk to? How would you hold yourself and carry yourself? And are any of those things dependent on whatever weight you are? And if your story is different to this one, Apply the same rules to it. Figure out what the happiness is attached to. What is the thing that happens that's going to make you happy? And then bring your power back to now and think about how you can have those experiences, those feelings, those things 
now without waiting for some other thing to happen before you can experience satisfaction. Of course, asking these kinds of questions can put us in really vulnerable territory because let's say it's the I'll be happy when we're married story because I'm worried he's going to cheat on me. So once we're married, I feel safer. Throwing your attention into that safer future doesn't draw your attention to the doubt and the lack of trust that's present right now. And that won't change once the marriage happens. So facing those doubts and having those conversations, those conversations that you would need to have in that situation would be potentially enormously vulnerable and enormously challenging. And I think that's one of the reasons we like the I'll be happy when story, because we don't have to deal with it now. We can just throw it into the future and go, okay, it's going to be much better when that happens. And that's precisely why that story is so dangerous and potentially so toxic. The I am not enough story, on the other hand, is quite clearly a, for want of a better phrase, negative story. It's a story that we can see is one that's not going to serve us particularly well. But just like the previous story, it brings into the light things that we don't always necessarily realize are there. The I am not enough story is protective. It presents in many, many different ways. I am not enough could be what many people refer to as imposter syndrome. We see that a lot in the workplace. Many of my corporate clients right up all the way through to the most senior positions in organizations. When you talk to them at a deep enough level, you find some form of imposter syndrome with almost everybody. Not necessarily all day, every day, and in every situation. It's more that it presents in situations where people look at themselves through the eyes of other people. Either other potential clients, um, it could be direct reports, it could be people they're already working with or people they might work with in the future. And so that imposter syndrome or that I am not enough story presents because we are looking at ourselves through the eyes of somebody else and we're determining what we think they think. That's also not usually something we're consciously aware that we're doing. But if you look at your I am not enough stories, I promise you, you are not looking at yourself through your own eyes. You are looking at yourself through the eyes of somebody else or possibly a group of people. When you figure out who those people are, that again will tell you a bit more about what questions to ask about the I am not enough story, what it's doing there, and how to potentially move yourself through that and into some new space where you can tell yourself a new story about how you are enough. You've always been enough, and you always will be enough. And that the thing you're doing isn't you, it's a thing you're doing. And it might work and it might not, but it won't change whether or not you're enough. Those two things are not the same thing. And that's another thing that's also built into the story is that somehow our identities get tied into the things we do. And it's really important to start recognizing all the stuff that we pull into our experience of life with the stories we tell ourselves. All the stuff that gets pulled into that spotlight and we look at it as if it's real, but what we don't recognize is that everything around us in that darkness is also real, we're just not looking at it. And that's how we end up in situations where we tell ourselves stories like, there's nothing I can do, and I have no choice. Those are two quite similar stories. I remember a client I was working with a couple of years ago who was in a job she absolutely hated. She'd been divorced for about a year and a half when I first met her and her daughter was five years old at the time. 
So she was living in quite a large house with just her and her daughter. And um, as part of the divorce settlement, her husband was still paying towards the mortgage and was also paying some child support. But she had quite a lot of overheads that she was covering and there were quite a lot of bills and uh, various financial commitments that she was keeping. And without the job, she couldn't meet the financial commitments. So she was stuck. And the trouble that she had was that it was a job that she had worked her way up through the ranks. She was quite senior in an organization. But if she were to try and jump to something similar in another field or in another company in the same industry, she wouldn't necessarily be able to get that type of position because she wasn't as qualified as people who were younger than her coming into the market now. So... As far as she was concerned, she had no choice. She was going to have to stick out the job because her only options were keep the job and be able to pay for stuff or lose the job, have no other job and end up taking a lesser paid, less senior position and then end up in financial difficulties. And she really didn't want to ask her ex for more money. But when we started talking and I started asking her about the things that were most important to her in her life, and we created a list and we mapped out a series of different things over the course of our sessions together, none of the things that were important to her were really truly dependent on her paycheck or on her staying in that four-bed house with just her and her daughter. But she had become locked into those things for a number of reasons. One, because of things her mom had said. Two, because of the proximity of the house to her daughter's school. And three, because selling the house had financial implications for her husband as well. And she didn't want to have that conversation with him. So once we were able to lay all of that out, the I have no choice story or there's nothing I can do story no longer held true. There were plenty of options available to her that would allow her to hold on to the things that were most important to her and still potentially let go of the job and free herself from that kind of everyday misery that she was experiencing. Now, of course, we had to work through some of the things about her relationship with her mom, and we had to work through some of the things that she was worrying about and some of the things that she was projecting that she thought other people would think of her, that she thought she'd have to have conversations with her ex-husband about. All these sorts of things were there. And hats off to you if you spotted the I am not enough story as part of that whole mix. But when we were able to say, okay, but that doesn't mean you have no choice. That means you have a choice about whether or not to make that more important than this, than you finding your way towards a life that works for you. If you choose to put your mother's opinion over your experience of life, that is a choice and you can make it, but it doesn't mean you have no choices. So these things are not always easy. They can be enormously taxing, really exhausting, and so, so difficult, but when we break free from the stories, at least we can see what we're really dealing with. And when we can see what we're really dealing with, we can decide whether we want to face it or whether we're just going to leave it where it is, but it's still a choice. The last story that I wanted to deal with is the, the other person sucks story. Oh my goodness, this has so much built into it that is not helpful. I remember a client I was working with, uh, it was just before the first lockdown in 2020 and she was convinced that her husband was cheating on her and so when she and I had our first conversation she was running the he sucks story 
He's a typical man, they can't keep it in their pants, they're all the same, he's pathetic. All the usual things you would expect to hear along with the other person sucks and the storyline that goes with that. But the trouble with this story is, once again, what it calls into that circle of light, into that torchlight that she then came to look at without really even realizing that she'd put it there. If he's ridiculous and pathetic and can't keep it in his pants, what has the rest of their relationship been about? What does any future possibility look like? If he's just like every other man, what does her future look like, whether she stays with him or not? This would surely then just keep happening. Because ultimately, they're both powerless in this situation. He'll be powerless to resist if this happens again. And she's clearly powerless to do anything about it, no matter how loving or how great their relationship is, because he can't control himself. It's impossible. The oversimplification of this storyline is what gives it its power and what makes it so destructive. In this case, it reduces the husband to a caricature of himself. And things are never that simple. As it turned out in this particular case, there was no infidelity. But what had been happening was a gradual disconnection between the two of them. And when they started to talk about it without that kind of you suck thing playing in the background, when they really started to focus on reconnecting and seeing and hearing each other and doing that with respect, they were able to kind of rekindle what they had at the beginning of their relationship. But those types of conversations are rarely possible in the face of the other person sucks story. So in this particular case, it turned out that he had actually befriended a woman at his work and they were going running together and having lunch together and stuff like that. But that's all it was, or at least that's all it was at the time when they started having the conversations they really needed to have. But I genuinely believe that in the face of the other person sucks storyline, I think things could have been really different. Because of course that kind of friendship has the makings of becoming something else. And in the face of the other person sucks, regardless of which one of them is telling themselves that story, the disconnection between them grows. That's what comes into that light, into the torchlight. That's what they shine it on. Because instead of attention going to, hmm, things don't feel quite right between us and I need to do something about that. It goes to, hmm, things don't feel quite right between us. It's his fault, or it's her fault, or it's my fault. And then your mind casts around for the faults and evidence that you are correct as to where you are laying the blame. And there's very rarely anything good that comes from that. Whereas I think when we recognize the complexity of people and the fact that People do weird stuff all the time, counterintuitive things. They do things to comfort themselves. They do things to feel better, to numb out emotions. They do things because they don't have the skills or the confidence to do something better in that situation. There's all kinds of reasons why people do what they do. And that doesn't excuse those things. But when we start to recognize that for some reason, that person has chosen a particular path, a particular behavior, and if we can understand that reason, if this relationship really matters, if we can begin to understand and to listen and to respect the person, make sense of the complexity and then figure out how to move forward, we stand a much better chance of ending up somewhere we actually want to be. I haven't yet seen the other person sucks story lead to anything good. 
except in situations where the outcome was that you particularly want to get rid of that person from your life. I once left a job because I thought my boss sucked and so I walked away. But as it turned out, he was just really, really stressed and had a lot going on and perhaps didn't have the skills to deal with people management when he had somebody who was super needy of praise and acknowledgement, which I was at the time. Luckily, it worked out and I built an amazing career anyway, as did he. But having had a chance to talk to him since and find out about the pressures that he was under, seeing his behavior in that light makes me see that the other person's sucked storyline was neither true nor useful, even though it worked out okay. In the case of the client I told you about, she and her husband are very happily married, more connected than they ever were, and this couple are fellow adopters. So had that the other person sucks story been able to take root enough to change the course of their lives, it would have changed the course of their children's lives too. All from a story. So never let yourself underestimate the power of the stories you tell yourself. They change everything. They really change everything. They change what you see, they change what you do, and they change how your life takes shape as a result. The most useful things you can do with the stories you tell yourself is first of all to become aware of them and second to think about what comes with those stories. If you believe them, what else is tacked onto them that you didn't actually spot was there? Stuff that you had brought into that spotlight that you weren't noticing you had brought with you but was changing your reality. And from there, start asking questions. If you need help figuring out what questions to ask, if you're just tangled up in knots or you can't even really identify the stories you're telling yourself, you just know they're there but you don't know what they are, then reach out, go to bighappylife.co.uk and let's have a conversation and get to the bottom of it. And if you are able to uncover your stories and you'd like to comment or ask any questions, again, you can do that at bighappylife.co.uk and you can also join the Facebook group. You'll find that at Big Happy Life page. It's always a delight to get your comments and questions, so please do reach out and I look forward to hearing from you. But for now, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.